Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, November the 25th, 2023. Uh, 2023, I think, will inevitably be remembered by tech historians, economic historians, as perhaps the first year of our AI age, an AI age which is radically affecting the nature of work and of jobs. We've done lots of shows on jobs and what they're going to look like in the tech, high big tech AI future. One with the MIT economist, Zeynep Ton, uh, who has an extremely interesting new book out, The Case for Good Jobs, which got shortlisted uh, for the FT uh, Economics Book of the Year. Uh, others believe that uh, the future will be one where there won't be jobs. There's an interesting new book out, Work Without Jobs. But my guest today, I think, wants us to work differently. Uh, Kate Mercer uh, is a senior strategist, thinker, writer at um, Mercer, a large global consultancy. Uh, she's also worked very closely with the World Economic Forum when it comes to jobs. And she's the co-author of an interesting new book out. Uh, it's out this week. This is the first time she's talked about it. It's called Work Different. And she's joining us from Brighton in southern England in Sussex. Kate, so congratulations on the new book. Um, Zenith Tom says we need better jobs. Some people say we don't need jobs. You say work different. What does that mean? Does that mean work with or without jobs? Look, I think we're, you know you showed the book up there, Ravinder Sutherson, who's a good colleague of mine, and I love his book, Work Without Jobs. I think the reality is we all will need a job in some shape or form. I think the, the premise of that is we might need more jobs that allow us to learn for tomorrow in the jobs of today and have a bit more flex, flex and flow in them. So this book is really saying, given all the changes we've seen over the last few years from the pandemic to, as you mentioned, the advent of ChatGPT, what are the new generation coming into workplaces really want? And how can we pivot our leadership styles and our talent models to make work um, enjoyable for them, make sure that our talent pipeline is more sustainable and that it's less exhausting day to day, whether we call it work or whether we call it a job? I, my, my two kids are in their 20s. They're both transitioning from college to work. I think it's a very hard transition. And from a, a parental point of view, it's very hard to give advice. Uh, mm -hmm. What advice would you give kids just coming out of college or just going into college about what they should and shouldn't learn and how they should prepare themselves for working differently, as you suggest in, in your book title? Well, you know, it's so interesting you brought up um, young people's sort of views on work, because one of the reasons why we actually embarked on this job was actually because we were in an airport and we overheard the conversation with a, I think it was a, an executive of HR saying, look, we've hired all these grads straight out of college because, you know, we offer good training, pretty good pay when they first join. And within two years, they're gone and they've gone to their primary competitors. And <laughs> as you, you sometimes end up listening into these conversations and uh, the person was saying, look, I don't blame these kids leaving. They're leaving because they can actually get much better benefits and pay. They get a big sign-on bonus when they go to these other firms. And it just got us 
you know, as three authors thinking, look, when do we stop valuing loyalty? And when did the work experience be so heavily placed on young people to figure out what I want to do? And I think the reality is there isn't enough movement in our organizations. We have paid people for leaving rather than staying. And when I look at our latest data, people are actually craving an organization that they respect for their purpose, one that they actually feel they belong with. And actually this exhaustive churn and burn that we've seen isn't serving them well and isn't serving businesses well. So what I would say to young people today is check out the organizations that you are joining, not just the job or the vocation you want to join in. Because I think the great employers out there are actually moving people around much more rapidly and creating really interesting careers and encouraging people to play with large language models and you know bring in that uh, machine human teaming that you were talking about at the beginning there. Uh, as you noted, your colleagues have a, a new book out, Work Without Jobs. You believe that uh, there will be jobs in the future. But before we get to that... Um, your, work, your, your book, your new book is called Work Different. You co-authored it with a couple of colleagues. What is work, Kate? Um, do, do we need to be rethinking even the concept? There are some radical thinkers, as you know, who suggest that there shouldn't be a formal division between work and leisure. Or all leisure is work and all, 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 all <laughs> work is leisure. Is is that correct? Or, or do you, in your new book, do you use a more traditional notion of what work is, something that perhaps you're paid for? Yeah, it, really interesting question. Um, I think if you feel that your work is leisure, you probably got more right than wrong. Um, in the book, we do talk about that evolution of our relationship with work. You know, I think that loyalty contract where it was very much a set number of hours for pay is long gone. That then became a dominant paradigm around the engagement contract. If you're engaged and inspired, you'll work harder and longer. Um, and I think coming out to this pandemic period, we moved into more of a thrive contract where we people actually wanted to feel healthy outside of work, not just inside of work. And they were looking to the organization to offer them a lot more benefits and, and look after their health and well-being. Now we have interest entered what we call the lifestyle contract because this year many employees would actually trade a pay rise for more time off, more flexibility, and they're really looking for life to fit around them rather than them fit into life. In the book, we talk about goodbye employee, hello contributors, because they want to see that they are equal contributors to a worthwhile mission and they don't want to work for you. They want you to work with them. And that's a big mindset shift. And a big part of that is if I'm going to bring my best, then yes, work alongside my life lifestyle as opposed to have me completely adapt to yours. And that's a, a big change I think we've seen in the last few years. We are speaking with Kate Bravery, a co-author of an interesting new book, uh, Work Different, 10 Truths for Winning in the People Age. Uh, we talked about the generational, we touched on the generational issue earlier, Kate. A lot of people believe that young people have a different attitude to work, just as work will have a different attitude towards them because of changes in technology and in the economy. Are young people more demanding? Do they want a more meaningful experience? Do they want to be in or out of the office more? What is in particular, and I, and I know this book was in some ways triggered by COVID, how, how has COVID reshaped the younger generation? Well, I think COVID has obviously had a profound impact on the younger generation, whether it was those that 
didn't get to enjoy some of those uh, rites of passage celebrations with their colleagues during the lockdown years, or whether it's because some of them didn't get some of those social experiences that we've all benefited from that have shaped us. And I think we've had a huge reset in the last couple of years. Um, you first mentioned there about do these people want more meaningful work? And the answer is absolutely yes. I have the privilege of doing Mercer's Global Talent Trends research uh, every single year, looking at employees around the world. And what we have seen year on year is the importance of, I want to work for a company that I'm proud of. I expect my organization to have to be making progress on sustainability matters. Um, the impact and influence of the manager with that population has steadily declined. I think that's quite interesting in itself. Those COVID years also were point of reflection. We all stepped back and said, what is my relationship with work? Am I spending too much, too little time at work? Where do I want to be? Um, I just actually this week started to look at the, um, the data that will go into the 2024 global talent trends. And one in two of the population said, actually, frankly, I don't want to work at all. And when you look at millennials, it is, it, it, sorry, it's one in two for millennials and one in four for everybody else. And we dug a little deeper on that. And they don't want to work in jobs that look like their parents' jobs. What they want to work is in an organization where they feel they've got opportunity to have their say, where they can show up as a whole person, and even have a side gig, which again, I think is very different probably to the world of work that you and I came from. Is that a bit delusional though, Kate? Um, <laughs> people are taught in college and school to pursue their passion, they go to college, they're told to pursue their passion, they get out in the workplace, as you know better than I do, and they're forced to do jobs that they may not like, and they're forced to do things that they may not like, and they're forced to work with people they may not like. Is there an, a, a delusional element, particularly in our education system, with promising work that in the real world just doesn't exist? Look, I think you bring up some really good good questions there. Um, you know, the world has has moved on and the speed of change is never as slow as it's going to be today. The relevance of a five or seven year degree to some of the jobs of the future has diminished. Um, you know, the shelf life of a skill, particularly technical skill, has got shorter and shorter. And the world has moved on in terms of our ability to, I think, develop people in the workplace. You know, the reason why we used to do degrees and masters is because they're a proxy for intelligence or actually perseverance, um, stamina, goal achievement. We've now got great ways of measuring that inside organizations, whether it's through our psychometrics, whether it's through making predictions of skills have got based on people's social footprint and private previous roles that they've done. And I'm also seeing more progressive organizations think intentionally about how can I redesign this job so it's training successes? How can I redesign this job so we can have more part-time workers, remote workers, fulfill parts of the work? How can I redesign this job so 10% or 30% can be used for different projects so that people are constantly learning? And that just didn't exist when you and I entered the workplace. When you and I entered the workplace, it was, you know, you learned up until you went into work, you had those horrible experiences in the world of work and you did your time and hopefully you landed in a good spot and then you retired. Now, unfortunately, as we're living longer and our pensions are getting smaller, we actually don't have enough money to retire. We have that linear view. And if we're facing living to 100 and working to 70 plus, we need mechanisms for training within work. And I'm not saying that degrees don't give you some great skills. They do. I'm a big advocate myself. But I also think in the past, 
they prevented our mindset around degrees have prevented non-traditional talent getting into the workforce they've driven low workforce participation with minorities and women and they sometimes held us back in moving people around quick enough but if we don't move them around quick enough they're going to be the first to leave yeah i like that response i just did a show earlier today with uh, an advocate of tech for good and she kept on talking about education and anytime anyone comes up with education as a fix it suggests to me at least that they do really don't know how to to make the fix and the fact that you suggest that education isn't the answer i think is um is 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 quite honest does education then need to change to the business schools and the undergraduate and graduate programs do they need to reinvent themselves just as we need to work different. Do we need to educate different? Mm -hmm. Totally agree. And, and I think they are. Um, I have the privilege of being on the Holt Advisory Board, and they're actually thinking around what is what is it, what does education look like in the new world of work? And how do we make sure that our leadership models within educational institutions don't just come from the privileged West? And, and I think that's really important. You know, you and I were talking before, I spent 10 years working in Asia. And I do think the, the mental models about the role of education is quite different. I also think the teachings are different. And I think we need to change some of that divide. What I am really excited about is the wonderful explosion we've seen in edX over the last few years. Again, I don't think that's the whole solution, but it's definitely making upskilling and reskilling much more accessible. And then there's also firms like Digital Frontiers and others that are intentionally building capacity in areas where we need to build brand new skills, um, either related to the green economy or related to inclusive finance in sub-Saharan Africa or India or other places where people wouldn't have had that. And I think that's really exciting and gonna bring a lot more diversity of thought into our organizations. And with AI, that's gonna become more and more important. I take all that and perhaps there's some truth. But the other truth about education, I'm talking to a senior person at Columbia University tomorrow about his ideas of reinventing the university in America, is that these educational institutions, particularly further educational institutions in the West, in the, in the US and the UK, all they do is compound inequality. And they're enormously expensive. They require networks to get in, networks to pay, networks to survive. Um, should education establishments be used also as battering rams against the growing inequality in our world, which manifests itself, of course, in, in the work environment as well? Look, I think let's start with the big problems that we've all got to solve. Um, we've got a phenomenal upskilling and reskilling challenge on our hands if we're going to intentionally move people who are quite frankly in sunset roles today into sunrise roles of tomorrow and we need all hands at the deck to make that work and i think i'm seeing some really wonderful partnerships be between universities and the private sector and um uh training institutes that i think is really making a difference but I also, I, I totally hear your comments there about the old boys network. And I think one of the- and so, I mean, uh, you're obviously a woman, but it's, it's also an old girls, it's increasingly- becoming An old girls network, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think, you know, one, it can, you know, provide some wonderful networks and friendships that people carry on through life, which is great, but they can be exclusive rather than inclusive. Where I hang my hat though, is if we're moving to more skills-based organizations, so we're moving away from jobs, 
as being kind of the currency of work to skills being the currency of work what happens is that's not going to get you that far because if you don't have the skills or if you're not curious and learning new skills you're going to fall behind and i think now when ai is choosing how do we match people to jobs and ai is deciding who do we promote and ai is giving us input to make sure that our pay and promotion decisions are equitable i think those advantages are beginning to dissipate yeah, I take your point on from jobs to skills, and that goes without saying, I guess, in some ways. And yet with AI, how can know how can one know what a marketable skill is? Because tomorrow or next month or next year, those skills will be made redundant by smart machines. I agree. And I think the companies that are leading on this agenda are doing a lot of work to look at what will be the skills of tomorrow. How can we be very transparent with our workforce about what skills we will pay a premium on? And they're encouraging a lot of innovation between human machine teaming so we can have a better understanding about what tasks are better done by machine and what tasks are better done by human. Quite, quite frankly, I think this is the most exciting time to be in the world of work because we have that opportunity and that extra capacity or productivity actually gives us some breathing space to reinvent to redesign our work models, to make work hopefully less exhausting and more engaging. And that's a big part of what we advocate for in the book. We're speaking with Kate Bravery, the one of the three authors of Work Different, an intriguing new book out um, about uh, how work is going to change and how we need to change with it. Of course, we can't work all the time. We need to take some time off. And one way I would suggest when you take some time off is to read Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication uh, by Leon uh, Weaseltier and his team down in Washington, D.C. They're supporting uh, all our content. They're enabling this show. I'm going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Kate Bravery uh, to talk about 10 truths for winning in the people age. We've talked broadly about the book. We're going to get into the weeds after this short intermission. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Kate Bravery, the Brighton-based co-author of Work Different, um, a long-time, lifetime consultant. Kate, the subtitle of the book uh, suggests that there are, or at least you have, 10 truths for winning in the people age. Before we get to those 10 truths, maybe you could talk about one truth for losing. What's the thing that people shouldn't do? How do you lose in the people <laughs> age? How do you lose in the people age? Um, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think some of the ways where we've been seeing people not getting it quite right one has to be over-indexing on tech. Um, I think a lot oh, of people... Oh, so say that you, 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 you put that euphemistically. You mean doing too much tech. Yeah. So in the book, there is a, a one uh, company that talks about 
we implemented 18 different new tech processes for managers over a year. And in their engagement surveys at the end of the year, managers says, you know, working here as a manager is a burden, not a privilege. And so I do think we've, we've got, we've, we've focused too, more, too much on, you know, tech rollout as opposed to human adoption. And I think now we're actually seeing people, you know, step back, look at the employee experience and, and who's really benefiting from that tech and actually taking some of that out. Um, so I, I think that's one where people have maybe maybe got things wrong. Um, I, I think the other one that's probably a bit topical is uh, sustainability. Sustainability feels like it's been a bit of a fair weather friend. Um, you know, our ability to invest in DEI, ESG, you know, needs to be built into the fabric of how we do business as opposed to be if we have capacity after everything else and uh, i think we've, we've really seen some uh contractions on that and, and yeah i think there's a different way to be doing that and, and probably the last one maybe that relates back to what the conversation we were having before i think if we get stuck in looking at fte's full-time equivalents and only do workforce planning we miss that opportunity to redesign work around people, redesign work because more junior people can do it now with generative AI, redesign work because we can tap into contingent talent or talent in New York, South Africa and Brighton. Um, and, and I think that, again, is, is where we might be just playing the same old record again and where we start to see that boom and bust, which really hasn't served any of us very well over the last few years. So you're warning against, shall we say, a tech-centric enterprise or a tech-centric way of thinking. You're a big proponent of the human-centric enterprise, and that seems to be one of the foundations for your 10 truths. But in an age in which humans and machines are going to be harder and harder to separate, what exactly is a, a human-centric enterprise? So a human-centric enterprise is one that looks at how do we advance the humans in our organization? How do we design our talent and work processes around having improved human outcomes? You know, we've been talking a lot about the opportunities that generative AI will afford and depending where you read, you know, 14 to 13% increase in productivity. Well, there's a question right there. What are we doing with those productivity gains? Are we flowing them to the bottom line and returning them to shareholders? Or are we thinking more intentionally about does that give us the opportunity to look at a four-day work week? Does that get us the opportunity to move to these talent marketplaces we were discussing so people can learn jobs for tomorrow? Does it give us the opportunity to maybe dedicate more time to being curious on the books that, that you promote um, or have more time for, for reskilling? Also, you know, go back to that point about having all those tech kind of thrown at people. It's no surprise that about 82% of the population feel at any one point that they're at the risk of burnout. And a big part of that is just the sheer exhaustion of work. And so I think we need to be a bit more intentional about looking at the capacity of our people, redesigning jobs that are actually decent jobs and sustainable jobs, and making sure that we use some of that data and tech to nudge people to make decisions that advance their own health and wealth. Well, then you, you seem to be more in, in the camp of uh, Zeynep Toma. I, I'm sure you're familiar with her book, The Case for Good Jobs, perhaps, rather than your colleagues who imagine working without jobs. Do we need to create, you and I are talking on a Saturday, Saturday morning in California, early evening in, in, in Brighton in England. Should employers and employees um, create a, a, a harder distinction between work and labor? Should we be working at the weekend? Should we be checking up 
emails at the weekends, Kate? Well, I'm not sure if it's up to you or I what we should or shouldn't do, to be honest. But, you know, some governments and uh, legislators have entered into the fray on that. Um, and I think some of the, you know, not sending emails after a certain time and not tapping people on the weekend, you know, I think works in certain cultures. But honestly, what I'm seeing from the data that we have is people want the freedom of choice. Some people like me <laughs> want to be a crazy workaholic that works on the weekend, but that actually fits with my lifestyle. I've got two young children at home and I want to you know, be able to flex on the mornings and the afternoons so I can pick them up. So again, back to that lifestyle contract, I'm making it work around me. Now saying that this whole flexible working experiment has been fascinating because actually, now we have globally more people who say, I do value time back in the office because I miss structure, because I did suffer from social isolation. So your point about do people need some structure is absolutely yes. Does that structure mean we go back to the traditional nine to five? I'm not sure. Is this what you mean when you write about the rise of the relatable organization? Is this another perhaps another way of, of, of describing a human-centric enterprise, a relatable organization. I know you you were involved with this, uh, this Mercer White paper too. Yes, I, I, I was. Look, I think they're, they're absolutely two, two sides of the same coin. Um, on the one hand, people want to have jobs that are designed around them and their needs and their unmet needs and their preferences. On the other hand, they also want... Um, to work for an organization that they can relate to in terms of their values. So one of the things we did see coming out of the pandemic was people saying, I actually care whether my company comes off mute on some of these topics. And these are often political topics that companies before the pandemic would never have weighed into. And that, particularly for the younger generation, seems to have much more value on, on, on whether they have pride in that brand and whether they actually want to stay with that organization than we certainly saw with Gen X and, and baby boomers populations. But it also give headaches to yeah. HR. I know some of the big tech companies out here um, are scratching their head about what to do with young programmers who demand their companies do good. Uh, this came out, of course, in the, the recent OpenAI saga, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you've been mm -hmm. following. Yeah. Does there need to be a balance there too? And again, educate younger workers into understanding that a company ultimately has to make money if it's to be a company. Look, I absolutely agree with your point about a company has to make money. And one of the things you will see throughout the 10 truths in this book is a deep understanding of what employees are asking for. But we are absolutely not saying we need to meet employees on their terms because it has to be a balance. If we don't have business sustainability, we won't have people's sustainability. We won't be able to invest in environmental sustainability. And, you know, I think the recent events have shown us just the importance of governance and also, you know, how we message things. And I believe that that's a, a critical concern of any board. Um, but I also do think that those organisations that have come off mute have benefited. You mentioned earlier um, the collaboration MESA has with the World Economic Forum. And we were part of a consortium coming out of the pandemic period looking at what do we mean by good work and the world economic forum defined it as five pillars of good work but that initiative was actually encouraging organizations to make some bold commitments about how they would advance sort of the the you do with the s in esg or your dni ones and, and there were things such as 
making commitments to having a living wage around the world. And that's something that young people in particular really want to see their organizations come off mute, but only 21% of organizations in the US um, have adapted their compensation policies to it, to adopt that. It also talks about flexible working for all. Yeah, many people have solved that for their knowledge workers, but their frontline workers are still lagging. And that really creates inequity. But there's a there's a number of organizations that have, you know, like Unilever has said, by 2030, all our workers. Yeah, Uni, but, but Kate, you know, it's better than I do. Every time we have these conversations, I'm always asking for examples. And it's always the same one, Unilever and Paul Polman. I mean, are they exceptional? Are they just different from everyone else? Look, I think they've been bold enough to come off mute on some of that and be accountable. And that's, you know, that's got in their favor from times and the times that it hasn't. But I think this book is filled with many other examples. I think I mentioned them because we were talking about the World Economic Forum and good work. Earlier, we were talking about the move to skills-based talent models. And there, I think the, the shining leaders are, I think Novartis, you know, it's unbossed culture that it created even before the pandemic stood it really in good stead as they moved to more skills-based talent processes. Emphasis in India, we talk a lot about their pay for skills model, which actually returns some of the wealth that they are gaining from some of the new tech skills direct to workers. Um, so we do think there are other companies now that are beginning to think very broadly about the well-being of their workers and 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 innovating in a way that maybe Unilever was a bit of a, a bit of an outlier a few years ago, but others are now innovating with more agile models and contingent worker worker arrangements, which I, I hadn't seen a few years ago. It's nice to hear we have other examples apart from <laughs> Unilever. You mentioned the World Economic Forum a couple of times. You're also were involved with the Future of Jobs report, the World Economic Forum report that came out earlier this year. I do want to get to one or more, one or two more truths from you at the end of this conversation. But um, are, are there cultural differences that we need to take into account, Kate? In the United States, people work incredibly hard here. People don't seem to take holidays. Dramatic contrast, certainly with Europe. You've yeah, lived absolutely. all over the world. You're living in the UK. You've lived in South Africa. You work in the US. Do we simply have to acknowledge that people work differently in Europe, the United States, and Asia? Yeah, I mean, I think the phenomenon, I mean, and one of the authors that spent significant time in different parts of the world was to make sure that the truths in this book were universal and they weren't linked to any country. And you've got examples, I mean, I've just spent nine years in Asia and you've got lots of Asia examples as well as Europe examples, as well as US examples. But if we just look at the US, I mean, gosh, there's been what we've gone through just in the last year is phenomenal from obviously the explosion of ChatGPT to you know in, you know easy inflation to i think now we've declared that the great resignation is finally over what was it in 2022 i think 50 million people quit their job so you know i really do think that that's a very strong message that the world of work isn't working and i think about 65 percent of the people in the us said um the work is fundamentally broken um so we've got some things that we've got to get right and we did get some things right i mean i think Coming out of that pandemic period, we had more voices about, you know, whether this is fair pay for fair work and fair conditions. Um, I mean, 2023, I think, has had the highest um, merit budget increase in the U.S., um, I think, since since the financial crisis in 2000, uh, 2008. I think it was 3.8% um, or so. So we have seen changes coming out of this period. I think what the book's advocating is it's not enough and we need a fundamental reset 
of actually how we think about work. And we have some suggestions from leading companies that we think are thinking a bit different and, and doing things radically different to what we've seen in the last few years. Well, the, the book is called uh, Work Different, 10 Truths for Winning in the People Age. We've been dancing around these truths. <laughs> I don't want to give away all the truths because we want people, Kate, to read the book. But perhaps we might end with a couple of your favorite truths, the most truthful truths about truthful winning truth. in the people age. What are the, the if, you, if you had to boil these 10 truths down to, say, two, what would they be? Okay. Well, you know, uh, the timing of this is fantastic. It's the first time I've spoken to anyone about the book, and it actually arrived about three hours ago, the book. So, um, and I think, you know, there's always a big lag between uh, when the book uh, comes out, uh, when you write it, and when it comes out. Look, if you had to say to me, what are the two that I think sticking in your mind? And for me, it would probably be that intelligence is getting amplified. You know, <laughs> when we did this book um, in, I think, December last year, I put, uh, you know, the whole book through a large language model and got the book to generate what would they what what recommendations they would offer for business leaders which was you know at the time I mean everyone does that now but at the time it was quite interesting and I think the opportunities to amplify when you say you put it through you mean you 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 put the final edited version through chat gpt uh, we bought a large language model uh, in-house in and then we, of course, at that time, it was way too big to put the whole book. So, you know, lots of learnings. Back so, so in I, and I apologize for the naivety of this question. What, what, what do you mean? Were, were you looking for mistakes or weaknesses or suggestions? Oh, no, no. We, no, what we did is we trained the model on um, some of the things that we wrote before. Um, then we fed the whole model to um, the large language model. And then we uh, had specific prompts to ask questions saying, based on the content you have read, what would you do differently on Monday? And what would be your recommendation? Oh, I see. And how would you change things? So you um, created so, a smart reader. Yeah. And so we then um, had started to have a dialogue between us three as authors with the machine um, and to have a look at what they picked up. And just to make sure, I mean, these are pretty big truths, 10 big truths, that we weren't missing anything. And that was uh, an interesting exercise. But again, they, that was very early days in our learning of what a large language model can do for your business and your ways of working. So what, so what did the, LL, coming back to the, the perhaps the one or two truths that really stick out here, what did the LLM pick up on in the book? <laughs> um, you know, I think we, were, we didn't set out to write a book on the future of work. And then um, I think the model... Um, reflected back to us what we actually had wrote. I think we hadn't realized how strongly people's sustainability and making work less exhausting and designing our talent practices so that we anticipate rather than react was such a theme. So for us, it, it gave a great mirror back to us as to what were some of the themes and what were maybe some of the, the um, recommendations across all the case studies that were, were coming up. Um, so it did get us, it, it forced us to look a little differently uh, at it, which for us was a was a great exercise. So I think that opportunity that is affording in the workplace and the opportunity to pause and, and rethink how we do work and then redesign our workflows has to be, for me, one of the, the top truths. And then the other one that I think is really interesting is the fact that supply is unchained, um, that, you, you know, we can now look at talent across temporal, digital, cultural borders. Yes, that brings more challenge to leaders, which is in part why some people have pulled back from their flexible working policies, but it affords huge opportunities to look at how do we have a talent supply um, 
that maybe does level the playing field um, across the globe with, with different economies and the generational dividends that they might have versus we might have over here in the West might address some of the issues that you saw from some of the education that um, give a privilege to some and not others, but also just bring phenomenal ideas, innovation and diversity into our businesses. 